Hello everyone and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Good to have you with us and thanks for downloading or whatever it is you do. Um, I'm going to tell you first of all about our latest subscription offer and it's a good one because the price starts at 49.99 and when you subscribe to Motorsport you will get a four DVD box set on the history of Grand Prix racing. I'd like one of those, and it's worth £20. So you get the magazine for a year for 49.99, and all those DVDs. If you want to do that, and I hope you will, you go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash FDP, that's Foxtrot, what's the name? Delta. Delta, whatever. The <laughs> anyway, it's F for Freddy, D for Dog, P for Perez, 13. <laughs> I'll, I'll repeat it at the end. Okay. Anyway, thank you. The team today, the team today, uh, Nigel Roback is not here. He's in New York, where he likes to spend a bit of time after Montreal. Who wouldn't? But we do have uh, Ed Foster with us, Simon Aaron, and Damien Smith, our editor, of course. If you're a huge fan of Paul DeResta, you're in for a disappointment because he's not here. But we do have a real star from Scotland currently a star of a stage, screen and television, and formerly, of course, a multiple winner of Grand Prix, David Coulthard. Thank you very much. Are you going to cue a round of applause at that point? Yes, we are. Yeah, okay. Crowd went wild. Not. Anyway. I'm used to that. I'm used to it sort of petering out. <laughs> Thank you for giving us an hour of your valuable time. Um, can I ask you, can I get the ball rolling by asking you straight away, um, what was it like when you first jumped over the fence from people like me asking you questions all the time to you doing the same thing? Well, it's, that's a very good question because I've not even thought of that. Uh, the, I think it's still a work in progress. Uh, I think that I've always been a fan of, well, I know that actually, I've always been a fan of motorsport. So it seems almost as if being a racing driver w interrupted my enthusiasm for being able to read about it and, and watch racing because uh, I think I know a little bit up until 94 and then I know very little of what happened between then and 2008 and I'm slowly getting back into you know realizing what Formula One racing is and motorsport in general because you get so immersed in your career that actually it becomes difficult to to watch what's going on um, you know Martin Brundle is, is still a buddy despite being on opposing sides um, and he was saying that he uh, when he spoke with with Lewis Hamilton at the weekend uh, Lewis mentioned that he, he hasn't watched any of his races since he's been in Formula One well I guarantee you he watched every Grand Prix in detail up to the point he was a Grand Prix driver and I think what happens is you just get so busy doing stuff that actually sitting back and watching the race and enjoying it, even the ones that you've won, um, you, you stop doing because you're on to the next thing. When Does you that answer the question? Yeah. Uh, actually, I forgot, I forgot the question halfway through the answer. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. Most people do forget my questions. <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, just quickly, another thing that occurred to me was when you, when you got out of the car and started talking on the television, did, it, did you sometimes think, well, actually, this isn't terribly exciting? <laughs> It's different, there's no question. When you're at a Grand Prix as a driver, you, your whole day is focused on how you can work on the car, you know, your hopes, your fears, 
and okay, I never achieved the, the, the success of, of some of the other drivers out on track, but I have to presume, given all of the other conversations I've had with drivers, you know, more successful than myself, that they go through the same sort of nervous energy of, you know, is that front bar, the right bar? Can I keep it flat through that particular corner? All of the things that you, you have to think about, you don't just go out and react, you have to plan, of course. So whether it's set up, whether it's the, um, you know, what you're gonna do during the lap, you know, waiting in Canada, for turn 13, you know, it's the longest section of, of uh, straight there. You're doing very high speed. You have to pick a braking point. And no matter how skilled you are, that doesn't just happen randomly. You plan it, you look at it, and you say, well, I'm going to brake a wee bit later or a wee bit earlier. And uh, so you have to go through this sort of thought process. You've got sort of, you know, racy racing driver on one shoulder and conservative racing driver on the other shoulder, and you, you weigh up what might be the right thing to do. So uh, again, I've got to say, my mind and my brain are not really fully warmed up this morning, so I've forgotten what, I, what the, other, the question was again, but something, what was, my, what was my point? My point, ah, excitement in Formula One. Um, the thing I find difficult today is there's not enough going on to keep me fully engaged. And if I, if I look back to my first year with BBC, I was just a pundit. And I got bored quite quickly waiting around. You know, sometimes we'd, you know, we'd have like five minutes of conversation before we get into the, the qualifying show, and then maybe we'd have ten or fifteen minutes of talk afterwards. You know, the show might be an hour, but your but your contribution was very short. So that's how I ended up doing commentary, because I was I was getting bored with the hanging around. There's so a lot of hanging around. Yeah. There's a lot of hanging around. And so I, I, so I wasn't sort of motivated to, to do commentary any more than I was motivated to do all of the other things I'm doing. It just kind of happened by accident. And I find that I perform best when I'm busy because it keeps my mind focused on things. When I'm sitting around, then I really don't particularly enjoy being at Grand Prix. I'd rather be at home watching on the telly and being entertained. Okay. Before we go on to Damien and Ed and Simon, let me just say that uh, we'd like very much to welcome everybody on iTunes, on motorsportmagazine.com. And amazingly, in the last month on SoundCloud, where we have over 50,000 followers already. Impressive stuff. Have I got all that right? Uh, you have, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly so welcome right. everybody. And Do thanks. you know what SoundCloud is, Rob? Uh, no. <laughs> But well, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are fifty thousand people on it. That's all that matters, isn't it? Okay, that's a big cloud. It's a big cloud. Do you know what iTunes is, Rob? Uh, yes. <laughs> Shall we move on, D <laughs> Damien? We've got a very articulate man here. Let's let's uh, hear from him. Yeah, I just um, thoughts on Canadian Grand Prix. Really, um, one of the things that have, has come up this you know in the last few races, obviously, is just how in the mire McLaren seem to be. Uh, you're quite close to Jensen. What what do you think he's he's going through at the moment? How hard is it for him? Well, I think it's a, it's quite interesting to look at the contrast between where Jensen is right now and he said after the race, you know, he's never been so happy to get out of a racing car. I do remember having that feeling a couple of times towards the end of my career, you know, when we were trying to develop things at Red Bull, you know, it wasn't always clear whether we were going to break through from being, you know, just outside the top 10 to obviously the, the incredible success they have right now. So at that time, it was a little bit frustrating. Uh, for Jensen, he's been used to winning. Um, he's um, in this situation where it's, it's 
falling well short of what he would expect. And the contrast with Sergio Perez, where actually this is kind of where Sauber were last year with the occasional flash of brilliance, which is what's enabled him to get his drive at McLaren. So he's in a, in a relatively uncluttered, happy place, you know, going wheel to wheel with Jensen. And, and you've got to say the last couple of races, he's been a bit stronger than him. Uh, Jensen's in a sort of lose-lose situation where he, he has to be in front of Sergio to continue the sort of profile of respect that we that he, he undoubtedly deserved winning the world championship and going to McLaren and I actually think when he went to McLaren he went up in people's estimations more than just winning the title against Rubens at Braun because he went wheel to wheel with with Lewis and did a very respectable job and, and sometimes fantastic job in certain conditions relative to Lewis right now though because we don't really know where Sergio is as a driver clearly he's good but is he one of the greats we'll only know in the fullness of time so it, it's interesting you know, Jensen's not in a happy place. Sergio's probably in quite a happy place. Uh, McLaren are really, I think, you know, I said in the commentary at the weekend, this is rock bottom for them. Yep. Uh, you know, the first time they've been out of the points in, what was it, 64 or 65, 66 races. I, <laughs> I have three different stats over the weekend. Uh, thank you for that, 64. So, uh, yeah, this... And, and, and there's so many changes within McLaren with Mercedes not being there, with sponsors going. It really... In the past, you just knew they would bounce back, and I'm sure they will, but this is quite a long streak of lack of performance, and I'd be curious to know what you know, you, the three of you see on this, because you know, McLaren, you're just not used to them not having success. Yeah. It's going to be difficult for them next year, because they, they've got the Mercedes engines just for the one year, and then, then changing after that to Honda, you know, it's been, been announced recently. Surely that's going to be very difficult, because Mercedes isn't going to want to give them all the information because it's just going to be fed straight back to Honda, but they've got a contractual obligation to give them a certain amount. So it's going to be, I mean, it's not going to get any easier next year for them, is it? I think it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. You know, that relationship's been a long and successful one between McLaren and Mercedes. And all of a sudden, it's like sharing a house with your ex-wife and your new girlfriend. It's just not going to be at all comfortable, despite, <laughs> despite how, how good everyone would like to imagine the relationship. So... Uh, controlling the technology, there'll just be people there all the time. You know, they just won't have the same rights to to hold things at the factory. You know, there'll be security all around because you need to. That's you know, intellectual property rights. That's the thing that can separate the companies. So yeah, it will be awkward, but they'll put on a professional face and they'll get on with it. And secretly, of course, you know, McLaren already married to Honda. They they need that relationship to develop, and they'll be hoping for the sort of success they had in the past. What have been the biggest surprise, surprises for you this season so far, first seven races? Well, there's, I think there's been a number of good stories. I think that uh, on the bad story side, uh, there, the tyre the thing has been a little bit frustrating. And what surprised me is, you know, I, I commented that I thought the Monaco Grand Prix was a bit rubbish at times. And I never, ever thought I would say anything negative like that against a sport that I love. Um, you know, I would tend to always try and find the positive rather than the negative. But I found myself a bit frustrated by the fact that clearly the drivers were, were so far below their their personal limit pacing the tyres that that was a bit frustrating for me because all my career I was coughing up a lung trying to keep up with the pace. So it would have suited me nicely to have been able to <laughs> you know, drive well within uh, the, the pace of the car. So that's a negative. The positives are that we once again have a number of different team driver combinations capable of winning Grand Prix. And I think that that is, is a real positive for Formula One and is probably a result of relatively stable regulations for a number of years. 
and therefore Ferrari can deliver, Mercedes clearly have, have delivered at, at certain points, Red Bull consistently deliver. Uh, it can't all be down to one man, but clearly the structure they've got there of, of containing the egos or you know, making sure that people play to their strengths is, is something that, whether the other teams like it or not, is very interesting model to look at because Red Bull are kind of old school and the, the fact that if you go to their factory, uh, which I'm sure you've all been up there at some point, it's a very average uh, industrial estate in the middle of an amazing new town called Milton Keynes. And uh, having lived there for three years uh, in the lower formulas, you know, I was I was quite happy to have sort of served my time and and moved on from there. But they they are a perfect example that you you know it's it's not you know they're not fur coat and no knickers. It's you know what you see is what you get uh, from the outside, but inside it really delivers uh, because they've got good people empowered with the right budget to focus uh, developing. The thing as well, I think, for them that really stands out, and not because, you know, I, I've got some historical relationship and, and friendships over there, but I have to believe in the absence of ever having run a Grand Prix team that the fact that they are 100% focused on winning Grand Prix, whereas Ferrari have got road car divisions, McLaren have road car divisions and various other divisions, you know, it must you, you can't give 100%, and I've used the family thing again, you know, you, you can't give 100% to two girlfriends. You, you know, you've got to be focused on one. Uh, otherwise, someone's going to feel they're not quite getting the top performance. Just, I mean, just to pick up, just to pick up on what you were saying about Monaco, I mean, on the, the Monday after the race, I went through the race history charts because I'm sad like that. And the first uh, 10, 15 laps, whatever it was, Nico Rosberg was running at sub-GP2 pace, you know, which is just, I mean, and, and close to the Formula Renault 3.5 pace. No, all right, that's with a full fuel load, which is worth three or four seconds or whatever. But even so, you know, F1 should not be like that. There should be a separator between the top two steps. Yeah, I, I, t I totally agree with you. And, and, and thank you for giving up your valuable time to go through that sort of data. <laughs> Otherwise, I would not have been aware of it. It, it really does. You, Formula One should be the fastest form of single-seater racing at all times in my book. It shouldn't be only at the peak times in qualifying, you know, coming up through and okay, this is me looking back rather than forward, but if you look through the history of the sport, there won't have been many times when it's actually been below the pace of, you know, Formula 3000 or Formula 2 or whatever the various formulas were, and I'm sure someone now will go away and come back with a whole bunch of stats showing that Formula 1 hasn't always been yeah, the fastest. But I think it should. It has to be the fastest form of racing. It should be something that the drivers aspire to and really enjoy because it's it's taking you to a level that you've not been before. Well, the operative word here is racing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, as you said, in Canada, we had a race. I really enjoyed that. It was interesting to see the reaction from, from some of the fans. I'm sure in the same way you, you, know, you get mails into to the magazine or tweets or whatever, then, you know, I was saying I was enjoying the fact you could see the drivers working the wheel and it really looked like they were they were pushing. Some people felt it, because there wasn't a lot of overtaking and there wasn't crashes, for them it wasn't a good race. Monaco was a good race because there was crashes and because there was overtaking. So it's interesting how I would see a good race, and I'm sure you would share that same view, having been following motorsport for, for many years, and how the fans at home like to be entertained. You know, if they're given up two hours of the Sunday afternoon, then they want it to be a thriller in many ways. And there's so much that people can be entertained with today. And they have so much at their fingertips that it is the interesting thing, isn't it? You know, the purists would want one form of racing and maybe the next generation would want, you know, some graphics of 
flames and all the other various things they can get today and music videos and what have you. Well, you could say they could go and watch Rallycross and let us watch Grand Prix racing. I mean, it doesn't have to be. It's not a light entertainment show, David, is it? Is it? it shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with it. Is it's a hard sell or, you know, to new fans because it's a two-hour race. You know, it's a long time to keep right, people... It's an hour and a half, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's not like, okay, football's almost about the same, same length of time that I know much about it, but it's, it's a long sport to watch. You know. I mean, it's also complicated by the fact that, I mean, a good race isn't always the same thing as a good TV spectacle. Well, quite. That's what I mean, when you've got strategic differences and the, the guys who are competing against each other are on different parts of the track at the same time, we've seen that many times over the years. So you, it's actually a fantastic race if you're looking at the times and the sector times developing and see, see how it's evolving. But that doesn't always translate as a good TV spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting for me now in the commentary box, if, if you're not sure what the strategy is going to be and you have someone trying to do a, a slightly different strategy, then I think that's interesting to see it unfold. You know, we had that in Canada where Lotus obviously tried to do the, the one stop. It didn't work for them. Contrast with Force India, Paul Resta from a bad qualifying position, managed to go a, an incredibly long way on, on one set of tyres. Okay, he, he, that would not have been a winning strategy had he been further up the road, because the, the pace he was, you know, running about a second or so off the uh, the leader's pace. But nonetheless, it was the right strategy for him to leapfrog forward. Uh, but I think there was some good wheel-to-wheel stuff there. Interestingly, I think it was Ross Braun was mentioning about you know with DRS. It just makes it you know it just makes it very difficult to defend your position. So he was almost like he was criticising it as if it doesn't work for you at the other races. Um, so you know these are other forms uh, of overtaking devices. Whether it's you know cares kind of gets neutralised a little bit, but you can use it strategically. So there's a number of things that are there now that weren't there when I was racing that must make it easier to plan your strategy and/or at least gives you some chance of overtaking, which we never had in the past. What about in the cockpit? I mean, you've driven um, recent F1 cars um, for, for TV features and what have you, so you, you, you've got some understanding of what it was like, even in the short time since you've been um, uh, retired. Um, is it uh, so complicated now for drivers in terms of how much they've got to think about in terms of the, the curves and the DRS and um, what they've got coming next year as well? I think that you will always use anything that gives you performance. You'll use it easily. So I've not raced with cars or, or DRS, but I did race with, you know, an extra brake pedal and a McLaren and, and various other bits and pieces that we could adjust in the car. And when I remember back to that area when, um, or that era, sort of, with, with the, the the fiddle brake, you know, both Meek and I, it was meant to be a turning device for high-speed corners. So the old classic sort of tank track way of, of bringing, you know, yawing the car and reducing understeer, because typically the cars at the, in those days had a lot of understeer at high speed. And both of us ended up independently using it as a kind of traction con- control device. All it did was stop the inside wheel spinning, but it was enough to stop the car getting sideways. If you just dabbed the brake at the point where it started to spin up, you, you, you caught suddenly a, a big area of traction that the, and then you could eject out of the corner. So it didn't do anything to the engine electronically. All it did was just stop the car sliding. So what I, the, the thing that's interesting for me there is that as a driver, you'll use every available toy, even if it makes you busier. You know, accelerating whilst pushing a brake pedal was another dimension, but in the same way helicopter pilots managed to, to work with their, their hands and feet and their eyes in a different way to pilots, uh, to uh, fixed wing pilots, you'll just use the tools at your disposal. So I think the drivers today do that. Yes, it makes them busier, but if it makes them go faster, they don't mind at all. Would you prefer it now with all the buttons? 
I would just use them for what they are, performance enhancers. And uh, whether, you know, if I look back to when I first started in Formula One, we had a radio button and a drink button on the steering wheel. You know, we had the semi-automatic on the back, but that was literally it. All of the other buttons were on sub-dashes, so you had to look down. Then when they had enough technology to put all of the connectors down the steering column, that's the reason they ended up on the steering wheel. But they weren't there before because they couldn't fit them there. So we used to have hard cables attaching to the back of the steering wheel to try and get other information. So as technology has developed, it's allowed all of those. There's things in the steering wheel that, quite frankly, don't need to be in the steering wheel. They don't use all those 50 buttons all the time, um, but they're there because they can put them there. You've got to put them somewhere, and you may as well have them where the driver can do resets and things like that. So it's not as complicated as flying an aircraft in the fog coming into land somewhere. It, it's only a racing car. You can see where you're going. And at any given point, the, the, the fundamentals of driving are when to accelerate, when to brake, when to turn. Yeah, I think that's been the same whether it's Fangio or whether it's you know Sebastian Vettel. Well, while we're on this subject, I've got to ask you about our, our cover story for the, our next issue is you driving Jimmy Clark's Lotus 25, which you did recently for us at Silverstone. Thank you very much, by the way. You're um, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Can you can you imagine what it would have been like to to race that car fifty years ago compared to what you've been used to? What was very interesting for me is how that was a non-aerodynamic car. So it, it's an iconic car with uh, you know an incredible history, and we can all look back on on that period with the amazing drivers. But the car was very simple. It just relied on you know, mechanical parts generating the grip. There was there was probably lift on that car. You know, I'm not an aerodynamicist, but I, I presume as it faster it went, the, the more it tried to pull itself up into the into the air. So it was the simplicity of, of the formula at that time. And if, if you look prior to that, there were much more powerful Formula One cars around. And they'd sort of, were, you know, you'll probably be able to tell me the, the tracking of when they, they came down to those relatively you know, small litre, small horsepower engines from the sort of more powerful brutes of before. Um, and then the, f the Formula One developed into aerodynamic um, cars and, you know, engine capacities increased and power increased. And then it became more physically and technically challenging. But again, I don't think it matters whether it was that period, the period before or the period today. I think that great drivers in any era would, with the same level of understanding and fitness for their, their era would be as good as each other. You know, the technology for me, some drivers can maybe exploit the feeling of a certain tire or the feeling of, uh, you know, certain things, you know, ground effect, maybe driver, some drivers are better than others. Uh, you know, Nigel Mansell was very good with the, the active car relative to Patrese, but actually he'd probably been very good relative to Patrese in any given car, because, but the, the active car had a lack of feel, so you had to trust that while it searched for its rear ride height, because the Williams was constantly, if that was the target ride height, and I don't know why I'm showing you this with my finger, because people, <laughs> listening, people listening will have got no idea. Good radio, um, But imagine I was showing you a straight line of a target ride well, the active car was, you know, it was like a bandwidth. It was going either side of that. So it, you, you had variations of grip. And so therefore you had to really trust that it would be there when it really mattered. And some people can trust. And ultimately, confidence and trust is what separates, I think, the, the great drivers from the good drivers. thing is, though, the other thing about driving that car must have been, or you tell me, is that you must feel quite vulnerable in it compared to the type of cars that you've been driving. And there was a brilliant item on the BBC with, uh, with Hamilton and Moss looking at Moss's Mercedes and Hamilton's Mercedes. I thought it was fantastic. I'd like to see more of that. Anyway, um, 
the big difference was it was hugely dangerous, wasn't it? I mean, you know, now, nowadays, okay, you can make a lot of it's still dangerous. You can make a lot of money, retire, fantastic. In those days, you were almost you were quite likely to be dead. I think you're 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 spot on on that. There was a high likelihood that you would get injured, and I think that feature you're talking about, I really enjoyed that as well. That when we do the viewing in the morning before the the Grand Prix itself, that was the one that everyone was really whooping at and enjoying. And you know, I personally enjoyed how relaxed Lewis was because you know all of us have known Lewis since he was a kid. That we were seeing the Lewis we really know rather than the one that kind of sometimes shields himself from the media, puts the shades on, and you know, goes a bit more, um, whatever, West Coast um, than, than the, you know, the racer that we all know. Uh, Sterling's always great, just telling it the way it is. Uh, but I think, you know, if I just take my experience jumping in the, the Lotus, I didn't have the seatbelts particularly tight. I was going reasonably quickly on the back straight, definitely quick enough to kill myself if something broke or I made a mistake. So I wasn't really strapped in in the way I was sitting on some foam. So, you know, you don't take the same time. I would never have gone out in a modern Grand Prix car without the right seat and all that sort of thing. Because I was in the modern Grand Prix car, I was there to do a job. And to do my job, I had to be in the right environment. Whereas in having the opportunity to drive, you know, that car, it was get in, enjoy it for what it is. You know, you're driving, whatever, 80%, 70%, it doesn't matter. You're driving, you're feeling the car, you're, you're doing enough to, to have a little flavor of what it might be like. So I actually don't think it, it really matters what era you drove. You, you don't think that something's going to happen to you any more than, you know, the five of us sit around this table. One of us will depart before the rest, unless the whole building goes down, in which case we'll all go together. Um, but we don't, it's not necessarily based on age, it could be based on fate, you know, what happens crossing the street. We never think like that, and it's the same with racing drivers. Um, yes, you might think this is more dangerous than doing other things, but if you're in a zone of racing, why would you think about it? Because if they did, motorbike riders would never get on a motorbike. <laughs> Quite clearly, right. it's much more dangerous than driving a car. Sure, okay. Can we talk a little bit about uh, psycho psychological stuff? Earlier this year, we had the spat in Malaysia, which we have discussed before with Weber and Vettel and team orders. And But I'm just going back to your own career. Twice in consecutive races at McLaren, 97 at Hareth, then 98 in Melbourne, you were asked to cede a place to your teammate, let him win the race. What sort of effect does that have on you? Does it, I mean, is it just a momentary irritation or does it, or does it have a long-term effect when that kind of thing happens? Well, in terms of my career, there's, you know, it's topical because that represented a, a, a period that sort of gave Mika some momentum. I think that the bottom line is, if you look back, Mika was very quick over a single lap, and that was something that I didn't have that consistency in my career. So is that the turning point that meant that I wasn't so good over a single lap? Well, you know, we know that's not the case because in Formula 3 and the lower formulas, I was never particularly good at delivering the single lap. I tended to be better at starting races and going wheel to wheel and being consistent and all that sort of thing. And if I was out front, I, I would weave like a bastard and no one could overtook me. <laughs> overtook, overtake me. Sorry, I don't speak English. And, um, uh, and so I was able to win races that way. So I don't think personally it was the trigger between me having an, uh, you know multiple championships or not. I think Mika was just destined in the right time to to be the guy in in the team, like in other teams. You know, Fernando was just a bit quicker than Felipe, and all those sorts of things. You know, um, 
But if I if I focus on Hareth, I knew nothing about the agreement between Frank and Ron, which we now know there was an agreement uh, that if you know Ron they hadn't won a race for a while, he'd obviously said to Frank, "If we help you in some way, can you help us?" Uh, and Frank must have been like, "Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, we'll we'll do that." So it was late in the race. I get the call from Dave Ryan, who was on my side. Inevitably, within a team, there's there's two teams within a team, telling me that I should let Mika through, and I immediately said, "Well, no, I don't see why I should." Um, and they worked on the basis that I was running behind Mika before the first stop. I was in front of him after the stop, and whether I've never looked at it closely enough to know if this is factually correct or not. But Ron told me at the time that in pitting Mika, it compromised him, and that's how I got in front of him. Now, there was other examples like in Monaco 96 where they pitted Mika when they should have pitted me and all it did was allow Panis to come out in front of me and then we ended up losing a Grand Prix. So there's there's situations where clearly there was the right, whatever, if you're just looking at it from a team point of view, there were times where they didn't do the right thing. But anyway, he obviously thought that was the right thing at that moment. And I argued for about 20 laps that I wasn't moving over until I was told that I was compromising my position within the team, which I translated to mean you get fired if you don't take the instruction. So I moved over and Mika won the race. And I remember I had an American girlfriend at the time who had a, a great gift for one-liners. And she went up to Ron and said, uh, I won't say the F word, but she said, you're an effing asshole. And I thought, oh, well, I'm really fired now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, he didn't argue with it at all. So I thought, well, he must agree. <laughs> Uh, so that was all a little bit awkward, and I remember that night uh, we had a team party, and so you had Jack Villeneuve celebrating his world championship, and McLaren having an end of season get together in celebration of Mika winning the race. And when Mika up said a few words, literally a few words in random, it didn't make any sense, you know, as Mika, Mika would do when he had a few drinks. And I got up and pulled out a tape. Remember those old-fashioned tape cassettes you used to get? Yeah. Okay, so I pulled out one of those and, and uh, said, if anyone would like to listen to the, uh, the the full and unedited version of what was said on the radio, obviously I was doing it jokingly because it was a blank tape, but Ron afterwards, you know, he was, get, get that tape, get that tape <laughs> off him. Um, because they used to record the pit wall. And uh, I dare say all of the tapes from that particular <laughs> race were, were burned. And then... Then we went obviously to the, f the next race in, in Melbourne where it was agreed. We'd never been reliable in testing. We'd had a quick car. I, I, I can't, I, in my mind's eye, and you'll probably tell me this isn't the case, but I remember Barcelona, they were running around in like 19s or 20s at the time. And Mika w you know, went out and on the first day with some fuel on board, did like a 17.5. And it was like, just, you know, it's a stopwatch broken. It was so much quicker anyone else and then we got the car in and put a load of fuel in and spent most of the winter testing with fuel um, but it was unreliable car so we got to Melbourne and Ron's like look we're, we're clearly much quicker than the opposition if we drive 100% we're not going to finish this race so we have to come up with a way of we can manage the race and, and uh, in the, the absence of any other clever mechanism it was decided whoever get to the first corner first would be unchallenged and clearly that was Mika and then he made a pit stop which I ended up in front of him and then the the order had to be um, switched round and I did it obviously in the front of the start finish straight because I didn't see why if we had a private agreement why I would knowingly want to 
make it look like I was just being beaten. The fact that I now know in the fullness of time Mika was a more complete racing driver, but at the time you're in the middle of trying to do the best that you can. So I made it very obvious that I let him pass. Um, and none of us, I think, had really thought about what the consequence would be from a public point of view. We, you know, betting on Formula One wasn't really something that, unless you were a gambler, you wouldn't really think about. So we never thought about that angle. Uh, and also the fact that the public suddenly were seeing a result being manufactured. It had been happened in the history of motorsport, but it really seemed to upset people at the time. It upset me. I didn't want to have to move over for the second race in succession because of, you know, Mika making a mistake. He, he certainly... He didn't make a mistake in, in uh, Jerez before. So it was a bit of an ugly period in terms of moving over. So I sit here with 13 Grand Prix wins. I could quite easily have had 15. And then if I look at the ones that got away where I was leading and gearboxes blew up and engines and all that sort of thing, you, everyone's got their, their tales of what got away. Um, the modern Formula One, they don't tend to break down very much. But in the period I was racing, it was, you know, you'd expect not to finish 25% of the races. Yeah. Any any choice words from girlfriends to run after Melbourne? Uh, they were all banned from the <laughs> McLaren facilities thereafter. No, 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 no. That was only it was only Heidi ever came away with that. Which, I, but actually, fair play to her. You know, Americans don't really get racing, so that allowed her just to speak her mind. Um, it's, I should re rephrase that. Don't really get Formula One racing. Um, clearly, there's a, there's a, a number of fantastic forms of motorsport in the states. You know, you know what is the, the most fantastic thing about um, the motorsport podcast uh, with people like David is we get to hear, you know, what really happened in in some detail. And at the time, of course, all we got was a load of PR and no comment. And yeah. it's such a shame that, isn't it? That I know it is a shame, and it, it, it's embarrassing to be part of it at the time. But you 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 have to trust in the adults around you and those who are ultimately employing you. And if they say, well, look, this is this is our position, let's take that position, as long as not asking you to you know, openly lie about something, then withholding certain parts of information is kind of probably part of the game. Um, I don't even remember exactly what we said word for word in the conference afterwards, but it was all a bit awkward and a bit embarrassing and, and what have you. But um, that's the business of motor racing from time to time. Was Mika the best teammate you ever had? I think Mika is unquestionably one of the quickest drivers that, that's been in Formula One, not because he was a little bit in front of me, but I just think he, he very rarely made mistakes. And you've got to say Kimi actually has a large dose of that as well. Um, whether, whether he's, you know, the two of them at the top of the game, whether Kimi had that last little bit of raw speed that Mika had, I, I, I can't really judge because I was teammates with him at two different phases of my career. Um, but but Mika definitely, I think, had very good speed. And in my mind's eye, for what it's worth, I think that you know Mika was quicker uh, over single lap than Michael. But Michael was just very consistent and fitter. You know, Mika, I don't think was ever at the peak fitness that Michael had, and I don't think he had the work ethic that Michael had. Um, but I, I think he was an exceptional racing driver, nonetheless. Where, we need to move on. Sorry. So, where do you think Vettel fits into all this? You know, it's, it's obviously easier with hindsight, but is, is he up there with, with the likes of Mika? I think it's difficult to take him, to see him in the same light in just because of the way he, you know, he kind of came into Formula 1 looking like a skateboarder rather than a, a racer. But I've got to believe that he is very quick, very capable, very consistent. You know, you don't win as many races as he has. Okay, he's had a good car, but you don't win them against someone like uh, Mark, who's got good speed, or certainly always had good speed. You know, Mark's obviously at the other end of his career, but 
it's it's funny how Sebastian doesn't seem to get the the same level of respect for speed and ability that a Fernando does or or whatever. And I wonder if part of that's because Fernando won his championships against Michael in his first career. Um, Don't you think it's more because people are saying, oh, but he's in the Red Bull and anyone in a Red Bull, etc., etc., etc.? Don't you think there's an element of that Well, going? for sure there is, but ask Mark Webber how easy it is to win races in a Red Bull. You know, Mark's not an idiot by any stretch of the imagination, and, you know, Seb has more often than not been in front of him, and he delivers poles at an alarmingly high rate. And I think that's the, th the thing for me that really separates the the good drivers from the great drivers is the greats find space the greats find that that bit of dry track and deliver the pole positions and you know the most revered driver in, in formula one is probably senna and his strike rate of pole positions from starts was incredible and you've got to say seb's on his way to that but he doesn't have all of the the sort of mystique the complications that go with some of the other drivers so maybe that's why he doesn't get that you know he doesn't have that sort of approach with caution banner hanging around his his neck, you know, he's not as volatile as some of the other drivers um, in the way he reacts to things. So, uh, you know, I think I wonder if that's why you almost need to be, you know, people scared to approach you to really get that ultimate respect. You know, Fernando keeps himself very much to himself, doesn't he? Unless you're booked in to speak to him, you don't really get much yeah, sure. change from him. It was interesting on the, p the podium in Canada, you know, there was quite a few boos when he was up, up there being interviewed. Um, it must bug him. Surely, because, I mean, he doesn't deserve it, really. No, he, he doesn't, but I don't think he's that, you know, he doesn't do Twitter and all the other social networking things that we get into thinking that it's a good thing to do. Uh, so I don't think he's that bothered about what the public are, you know, of course, we're all sensitive to to not being openly disliked, but I don't think he's out there needing to have, you know, a Nigel Mansell type <laughs> adu adulation from the team Thank or whatever. Um, so... I don't think it really does bother him, but the the Ferrari thing, the, you, you know, in Montreal, we all know that there's, with that European mix, there's a huge following for Ferrari. So irrespective of whether it's Fernando, for sure Fernando gets something special because they know he can deliver. But if Felipe was up there, I think it would be the same. Um, and also, you know, I don't want to bring up the past, but there's probably the whole nationalistic thing of, you know, if you're going to pick a European country to pick on you you'd probably pick <laughs> germany wouldn't you <laughs> i think you would um we we really must move on to the questions from our readers because um there are a lot of them unsurprisingly um we're going to start with paul fernley and uh who you probably know actually david and uh, paul wants to know whether you still have your lucky underpants they got cut off me uh along with my race suit in belgium 1990 i think it was uh, when I had the little incident in Vauxhall Lotus and broke the, the small bone in my leg. So I no longer have my lucky underpants. They, they used to, they, that was the last time I wore them, they used to travel in a little bag um, ripped up uh, when I was at McLaren. I always had this lucky bag of bits and pieces, you know, things that you needed that were personal to you. And it got lost or nicked or something. And then I just got on with my career. Actually, my career went downhill after that. So that <laughs> might, maybe that explains it. Well, Paul, Paul was right, because he, he did say, or oh, were they binned after Spa? So now we know the answer. Okay, that's cleared that one up. Um, the next one comes from um, Robert King, and he wants to know, did you regret moving from Williams to McLaren at the end of 95? I remember vividly, and I've got a patchy memory at best when it comes to my own career, but I do remember vividly leading uh, Adelaide 95 and making love to the pit wall 
rather aggressively when I came in for my pit stop, unfortunately cost me that race. But uh, so I remember leading that race, having qualified second to three months later, I think it was, we were in Melbourne for, could we ended in Adelaide 95, started in Melbourne 96, and I'm sitting 13th on the grid. And, I, and it dawned on me at that point that, you know, I basically moved mainly for the financial benefits you know, being upgraded from a William salary to a McLaren salary. That wasn't primary motivation for me particularly, but I was with IMG at the time and clearly their main role is commercial. Yeah. Uh, and in the fullness of time, it ended up being a good thing going to McLaren. I spent nine years there. But in the short term, I probably would have done better had I stayed at Williams. That must have come flooding back a bit when Lewis was making his move over the winter, because um, there was the perception was it was it was because of money, wasn't it? You know. Yeah, but he was already highly paid at um, McLaren. Clearly, he's he's exceptionally well paid at, at uh, paid at Mercedes. But in the same way that when Jensen moved from Braun to McLaren, people thought he was mad because they just won the championship and he was going up against Lewis, and it turned out to be an inspired decision. I think you just got to go with what's available at the time, and. If you piece together the story of, of how Lewis moved, you know, he'd, I think he'd pretty much decided to stay at McLaren until Singapore when he had the problem with the, the car broke down again and Nicky got to him, spent time with him in his room and really lobbied him in a way that probably McLaren, in any relationship, you start to take things a little bit for granted. And I always used to say that McLaren, especially Ron, does amazing honeymoon but the marriage is not quite so good. You know, so the, the honeymoon, you're, you're promised so much and you're beautiful and you know, he's gonna make love to you all night long, every night, and then you get married and it's like, hold on a minute. <laughs> I'm watching a late night movie and drinking cocoa. Where's the session? So I've got a horrible thing. image in my mind. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry. So probably McLaren were engaged with Lewis's management rather than with him. You know, the sort of things that ultimately you're signing the driver, you're not signing the management negotiation. So, you know, it's easy for me to say, say that with the benefit of no knowledge of, of what actually happened. But I can imagine the scenario could have lived through similar things. Well, everybody can be absolutely assured that we at Motorsport are not here for the money. <laughs> um, David, this comes from Dennis Wilson. Um, do you wish that you'd nutted Schumacher after he came into your garage at Spa in '98? Uh, no, I'm not a fighting. I'm not a fighting person. When you look back on that, it does look bad on telly, doesn't it? The fact that he's lapping me and he runs in the back of me. I get. I still get asked today, you know, did you break and did you do this? I did lift because I'd been told he was behind me and I should, like any car lapping you, should get out of the way. The, the benefit of hindsight, I would never lift again on the straight. Uh, on the racing line, but equally at the time, I'm pretty sure my mind was, I know he can't see where I am. So the best place to be if I'm going to slow down is where he would expect me to be, which is on the line. Because if you pull offline, you, you know, the spray does move with you, but there's so much spray kind of hangs in the air. It can then be a little bit difficult to know. Now, if you were logically going to pass someone in Poulon, you'd pass on the inside. You wouldn't go around the outside. So you, you're trying to work out in your mind, where's the place to let someone pass? You know you've got to get out of the way within a few fl uh, flag signals. Maybe I should have waited to the bus stop and all that. But there was never any intention to, to take Michael out of the race. And obviously the tensions were high because of the battle between McLaren and Ferrari. But uh, the, out of that, the most amazing thing was when uh, we sat down in Monza. There was a test in Monza after Spa and there was banners out. People had written killer, Coulthard and all this sort of thing. They thought I'd try to kill him. 
uh, I'd probably just hire a hitman if I was going to do th- something like that. But uh, we sat down in Carl Heinz's motorhome on the Thursday to talk about it, the two of us. And, you know, he was convinced that I'd done it deliberately. And I said, look, it's just, it's not possible that it was deliberate. How can I look in my mirrors that are full of spray and know exactly where you are? So I can accept that you're upset and angry could it cost you a win, but you have to accept it wasn't deliberate. And then we get into the whole subject of responsibility. And I said, you, you know, you, you must be wrong from time to time. And he thought about it for a very short moment and said, not that I remember. I said, come on, when you're at home, when you're at home with your wife, you can't always be right. You must be wrong sometimes. And he went, no. And, and there, what I realized I was dealing with is a man, you know, with psychopath <laughs> tendencies to, to never believe well, that like anything he did was wrong. You got away lightly. and really Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, yeah. It's always if you want to get at someone, it's always best that they're in front of you. I find not not behind, <laughs> not behind you. Do you Good not agree? Point. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Pete West would like to know, nice and easy one. Uh, who was your f- the favourite teammate of yours in your career? Not, not nothing to do with the speed, but just the guy that you had the best times with. I think probably Mika because of the time we were together. We had a long, you know, seven years together. So we went through the McLaren coming up, him getting his first win. You know, I'd already won a Grand Prix when I joined the team, so I had vast experience of winning one race. Um, so we had a lot of fun over the years because it was a period where there was still cigarette money, so there was a lot of money sloshing around in the sport. We did a lot of promotions for West, doing things like going to Star City and, you know, astronaut training and stuff that would never really been done before. Uh, so that w- that was a fun period. It was an intense period because we, we used to test as well. Remember the days yeah, when there was yeah, in-season yeah. testing? A so lot we'd, of go, it. we'd go from a Grand Prix to then doing three days of testing. And then I always like to do my promotions the same week as the previous Grand Prix. So I'd do the three-day test and then fly off to Moscow or whatever, do a couple of days of promotions, and I'd be home Monday morning. I would have my three days of uh, sort of preparation training ahead of the Grand Prix where Mika liked to do his promotions the week of a Grand Prix so he liked to go back after the test and have the weekend at home so it was two different ways of, of tackling things but uh, no we had a lot of fun together um, This is quite an interesting one maybe not easy to answer off the top of your head but Catherine Jones wants to know if you could combine one current Grand Prix driver and one historic driver to get the ultimate racer who might you choose? Oh, there's so many that you could well, mix, so many legends that you would want to mix. That you know, I've, uh, I spent a little bit of time with Ayrton when we were when I was testing for him, and I, you know, the really the way he, he went about things was was pretty intense, but um, very impressive to to watch. You know, I've still got overlays of when I've driven the car, you know, the same car as him, and seeing where you know, a couple of little places where I might have been quicker and all the other places where he was quicker and you know it's a great education but all of the big names that we could mention throughout the, the history of the sport it would be nice to mix a couple of those guys but to take extreme personalities so the ones that were maybe seen as being a bit more ex- extreme in one area and, and put it with someone who might have been seen as being a bit more mild uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to avoid answering the question by not giving two names but I think that uh, you know hypotheticals like that they're, n- they're nice to think about, yeah. but meanwhile, whilst I'm thinking about it, I can hear my heart beating, which tells me I'm two or three beats closer to the end of my life. So I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather use my heartbeats planning for what a big lunch I'm going to have after this and the party tonight, rather than spending too much time looking back. Good answer, David. Sorry, Catherine. Um, we, have to, we, have to get, we have to do this one. 
Um, Joanna Vella wants to know, do you and EJ get on or don't you? I admire EJ's success in the sport, uh, his commitment to charity, you know, the big heart. The, the time he makes more sense and is most eloquent is when he's at a charity function, got the mic and asking people to dig deep. You know, he makes complete sense. Uh, the words are not muddled. And it really is, you know, you, you feel compelled to reach a bit deeper than you might have done prior to that. I have to take my hat off to the business success he's had, although I have got no understanding how he ever managed to start a Grand Prix team and successfully operate it for so many years because he has got such a short attention span, it would appear today. But maybe in the same way that I don't have the same focus for anything today, that I had as a racing driver, maybe it's because when you step out of whatever the thing is that you were kind of, you, you know, you'd worked all your life towards, it's quite difficult. You know, I just don't have a competitive bone in my body anymore where I was very competitive when I was racing. Today, it doesn't really matter you know, in the same way that when, when I was racing, it did matter. It, you know, I really wanted to do the best I could. So, so it's difficult for me to judge Eddie how he would have been as a as a team boss uh you know i'm sure you've all had to work with him and deal with him in, in certain areas over the years uh, i wish he wouldn't stand on my shoe whenever he wanted to say something especially when i'm wearing white shoes and it's not subtle is it it's just it's annoying because i'll say don't do that please and i do do what i've asked you before don't if you want to make a point tap my leg or raise your hand or something but don't stand on my shoe oh I'm not going to say the words that he says. <laughs> and then he'll do, he'll do exactly the same thing. So a lot of the time when we come back in vision, if I look a little bit peed off, it's because while we've been out of vision, I've been giving him a horse bite in his arm, tell him, will, will you stop doing that? You know, it's the, 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 this when someone's talking to you, when, you know, constantly, and what the people listening to this can't see, is that I'm tapping Damien's arm right now. You know, they constantly tap you, and then you feel like just, Headbutton. Well, them. anyone who's done any broadcasting will completely sympathise with you. Yeah. It's extremely annoying and yeah. amazing. That's cool. There was always an annoying kid, wasn't he? He just bugged you the whole time. Yeah. It, just, it yeah. always reminds me of that. You that know. That's, that's Eddie, actually. Yeah. 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 In, okay. in China, I was lucky enough to come be in the commentary box for qualifying with, with you and Ben Edwards. And what struck me was it seems a very easy relationship in that commentary box. And you, you're never sort of talking over each other. And it's actually very calm. Um, which I th I comes across on TV, but it's even more obvious when you're sat there. I mean, I guess it's going very well with Ben. Yeah, yeah, I've known Ben going way, way back and used to listen to him and John on, on Eurosport and what have you. So I was very happy when, when Ben was you know, put forward as, as the, the chap who was coming into the commentary box. I think he's fantastic. He doesn't need anyone else in there. He's able to, you know, he's got some racing experience, so he knows what it's like behind the wheel. I think he's a good broadcaster, he's got great enthusiasm. You know, I've got a very flat voice, which stands out in contrast to, to his, which I think is probably not a bad thing. My voice is more likely to put people to sleep than it is to wake them up. But, um, you know, he's got all that sort of pants on fire, muddy type enthusiasm. And, you know, inevitably, occasionally, you, you, you know, if you both see the same thing at the same time, you, you both might want to react to it. But largely, I think we, we managed not to talk over each other. Uh, we're nearly at the end of the questions, but th this one comes from Richard Noel Rascoli. I, I hope I've pronounced it right. Anyway, um, he, he, he wants to ask you, David, or he, he is asking you, um, is Formula One really still a sport or is it a corporate 
exercise in marketing and business and PR. I mean, how much sport is there left in it, in your opinion? Well, it's too much of a sport to be a pure business and it's too much of a business to be pure sport. The reality is it's a, it's a crossover. It's, it's a marketing platform for all of the companies, which is why there's money in the, the sport to develop the technologies. If you go way back to the, the, the very first motor races where it was enthusiastic, wealthy amateurs going around airfields with barrels, very quickly it became supported whether it was somebody that was, you know, liked the idea of it but didn't want to do it, would then pay for a car. You know, that in itself is a, is a form of sponsorship and therefore you have an obligation. The obligations of the sport today are huge because of the television rights, because of the sponsors around the world, because the fans pay to go and be entertained. So is it really any different when you buy a ticket to go to a Grand Prix than buying a ticket to go to the cinema? Apart from at the cinema, you know it's 100% manufactured, unless it's a documentary. Um, the, you know, with sports, yeah. there's, there's always going to be, especially a technology sport like Formula One, a sport where you have two teams within a team. There's so many levels that make it, if you just want simplistic, you know, one guy hits one, you know, the boxing or something, and I'm, I'm not diminishing a sport which is a tremendous sport, and I've got great admiration for boxing, but it's very simple to understand. The rule is you don't punch below the belt, you don't bite, <laughs> and, but everything else pretty much goes, and it's, it's, a, it's a great spectacle of bravery and physical endurance and skills and all of those things, and I, I love that as a sport. But I also love motorsport because I enjoy the team element. I enjoy seeing a car being presented to a pit stop and all of those guys are as essential to the outcome of the race as a driver making a mistake at one corner and losing the lead. So those sorts of things for me make it an all-encompassing sport, um, which makes it a bit, maybe a bit more far-reaching than, than other sports. Yeah, no, I think it sums it up very well. We're nearly out of time, uh, but we need to just go quickly around the table to finish off, I think. Um, Ed, been a great chat, hasn't it? Well done. Well done for bringing DC in. Well, it didn't do much. Didn't do much. Um, I mean, just rewinding a little bit, you mentioned that you haven't got a competitive bone in your body at all. And it's, it's, that was sort of struck me as quite, quite odd because, I mean, it's the same as Jackie Stewart just literally stepping away and having no desire to compete. You obviously did DTM. Was, it, was that something that's happened over time or was that just a switch that, you know, you, you stepped back and thought, you know what, I'm, I'm done? I, I was definitely ready to stop. Formula One at the end of 2008, of course I miss the cars, I miss the teamwork and all of those things. I don't miss them as much as I miss other more important things in life. But, you know, there's a distant sort of warm feeling for how enjoyable it was. I loved being part of a team. I loved testing the cars, developing the cars. That for me was the real big glue that stuck everything together. Because in many ways, the four days of a Grand Prix weekend, for me, Thursday was always an endurance. I, I, I just never enjoyed Thursday because it was talking about it rather than doing it, standing around. You know, I, I liked how Friday you got in and tested parts. Saturday you had to go out and had a huge pressure for qualifying for me, which was always a big pressure. And then Sunday was almost like a release because it's competition day. Every Everything was an opportunity. So I loved all that, that part of the, the game, but I knew I wasn't getting any better. And in many ways, 2007 would have been a, a, a better point for me to have stopped racing because I think I was, you know, when I went through the winter of 2008, you know, into 2008, 
I was already tired starting the season. So I knew really that, you know, you, you can fool other people, but you can't fool yourself. So I was definitely ready to stop. Didn't think about racing at all in 2009 until the end of that season. I went to the DTM race and I was there with Mika. We're having beers, we're having fun and watching the cars go through the first corner and they look quite quick. And I thought, well, that looks like fun. So I asked Norbert to do a test, I did a test, I had fun, did another one, had fun, did another one. Oh, this is good fun. You know, no, there's no racing. So I'm not winning. I'm not losing. I'm just enjoying driving a car. I then find myself sitting on the grid in Hockenheim, the lights about to go out thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, I, I stopped this. And then I kind of get enjoyed learning about it and wheel banging and all of those things. And I did the three seasons, which actually became as much a family journey with my son. Uh, I stayed in the motorhome, he came with me. He was very young, but he, he understood that daddy was going racing. He understood, mm. and that became a sort of motivation that I wanted him to understand what, what daddy used to do. <laughs> and, and it's worked because today at almost five, He'll be like, where's the motorhome, Daddy? Uh, and wh wh when are we going to Germany to go racing again? I said, well, Daddy, stop now. He said, well, I want you to race again. <laughs> I said, I tell you what, hold that thought, and when you're old enough, we'll go racing with you. He says, well, can we have a motorhome, Daddy? I said, yes, we can. Because he it's enjoyed... A, it's you know, a dangerous game to play. Yeah, exactly. So, so he's already got that thought process. So in many ways, it worked from that point of view. But I can't reignite that absolute selfish desire, that last thought when you go to sleep and that first thought when you wake up, that, you know, how am I going to be quick at the next race? How can I win? That's gone. And, uh, you know, it's not, I'm not sad about that because I had very long and I think mildly successful career and some great opportunities. And it's time for the next generation. And in many ways, I'm very happy because you don't know this about yourself until you've lived the journey. But I'm happy I've been able to turn the page without any sort of the old chippy bitter bitterness that you see some ex-racing drivers. Um, and maybe they've got absolute reason and, uh, and should feel a bit chippy because they didn't get the chances that maybe I had. But you've got to just move on in life. You know, we, we can't pretend we're students and five quid in our pocket is going to see us all week. Um, you know, we, there, there's an evolution in life and I'm happy to have been able to live through that. So it's interesting you said uh, you hated Thursday because it was talking about it and not doing it. And now you're making a living out of talking about it. <laughs> it's funny how the world changes. <laughs> it does indeed. But, th but I don't have to go and do it now. And... Uh, when I do talk about it, I hope I can't see myself as in the way the other people do. And I know that just the way I look at life, there'll be people who like what I say just because they do. And there'll be those that absolutely can't stand it because they can. And some of them will be right because I'm talking bollocks and some will be wrong just because they don't like a Scottish accent or they don't like the way I look or whatever. But that's life. You know, you, you can't please everybody. But when I am in there, I try and remember I'm sitting at home in Scotland with my dad watching Grand Prix, and I didn't want to know about monkey seats and widgets and what's it. I just wanted to see entertainment and I wanted to have a little bit of colour around what was happening on the track. Now, I'm not, you know, I love the technology of the sport, but I think that's where you, you, you know, you then buy the, the magazines to, to be able to read in depth analysis and things like that. And I think that's why the you know, magazines have a very important part in, in what we're doing, whether it's electronically or whether it's in print. But um, I think the, the moving images, it, it, it's, you know, you, you're just there to add a little bit of voice to the great show, which hopefully is wheel to wheel action. Why did that driver do that? Well, because he, he went too deep into the corner. Why would he do that? Because he saw an opportunity. You know, you try and explain what you think might be the, the reason they've done something. Which of the guys, sort of next generation guys, people who've not yet moved into a top seat, guys like Hulkenberg, DeResta, and some of the rookies, Charles Peake, Jules Bianchi, which of that sort of 
new group of drivers have most impressed you and why? Well, you got to see Bianchi stands out as doing something beyond what his car might be capable of. And in saying that, then that obviously doesn't um, bode well for, for Max Chilton. Um, we, we can give him the credit of the fact it's his first season and all of those sorts of things. But it, the, the exceptional drivers through the history of time have usually shown something remarkable in average cars, um, whether it's Senna and Atolman or Alonso and Minardi. Whatever you want to see, you know, even Vettel in a Toro Rosso. Now, okay, it was a Adrian Newey designed Toro Rosso as opposed to, you know, what they get to drive today. But it was still a pretty remarkable performance in Monza, pole position in the way, winning in the way. You know, th there was an, a standout performance very early in his career. So, um, you know, I think that Bottas did an exceptional job at the weekend of getting it right up there in wet conditions, obviously went backwards in the race. But when they get the opportunity, you've got to deliver. You, you have to be able to show people what you can do. So whether Bianchi, th there's something about his, his facial expression, which is, is a little bit, for me, physicella or, you know, he's got quite, a f quite a, a, an unemotional set of eyes. And I just wonder whether when he does get his chance in a Ferrari or whatever it happens to be, whether he's, he's able to really show that sort of performance in a top team that he is in a you know, back of the grid team. You know, Heinz Harold Frentzen went well in a Jordan or a Sauber, but never really delivered in a, in a Williams. You know, you know what I'm trying to yeah, explain, yeah. and I'm not doing it very eloquently, no, but that <laughs> maybe there's, bit, yeah, that's it? a bit. Some, there's been drivers in the history of the sport that have shown amazing potential, but when the chance came, they weren't able really yeah. to somehow work the system or handle the pressure, or maybe the extra attention that comes, they find all a bit bemusing. They're Jan just, they're just hardwired. Right. Yeah, Jan was an exceptional kart racer, yeah. exceptional early. Amazing car racer yeah. and I remember when he was test driver at McLaren he just wasn't interested yeah. Yeah. you know I would be even when I was sick at Williams I would be there ready to test the car you know getting out of the car puking in a bin getting back in the car whereas they would just get a sick no oh, I don't feel well today and you know when I was was racing McLaren I would do every test to stop the test driver testing be you know because I got my chance at Williams because Mansell didn't want to test and I showed commitment and willing. So I thought, well, if you apply that to your racing career, you've got to be able to extend <laughs> a few years the opportunity because if you stop others having the chance to show their talent, they can't show their talent. talent. And also, you develop the car specifically for you rather than someone else de developing a bit that's faster that might not suit you. Damien. Speaking of the next generation, uh, if it was to happen, how would you approach and feel about being a racing dad? I think I would be like any other racing dad. I would be nervous. I would be um, committed, frustrated, happy. You know, all of the emotions that racing dads go through. And, you know, Dayton is the name of our son. He's not particularly showing big interest in, in cars, apart from asking when I was going racing again. He enjoyed the being, you know, traveling and being in the motorhome and all of those, those sorts of things. Um, but he doesn't particularly look like he, he's showing any interest to get in a little, he's got an electric car, he'll jump in occasionally, but he'll quite happily be on his scooter or he'll quite happily be playing in the mud. So maybe that's just a young kid thing. So I'm not going to push him anyway, but whatever he decides he wants to do, then I will push him to focus on giving 100% because that's all my father did. It was like, if you want to do it, we'll support you, but you've got to give 100%. And if you're not prepared to, then why would we spend the money? And it's quite difficult maybe when you're young to fully comprehend that. But if you keep hearing the same thing repeatedly as you go through your teens and into your, you know, your later teens, and I think it really does start to, to hit home the importance of, 
of whatever talent you've got, if, you, if you're leaving nothing on the table, you can sleep comfortably at night. Good place to end, I'd say. Good thought. Um, thank you very much, David. You should anyway, ma- should uh, mention he's in the next magazine again, just yes, to say yes, uh, he's, yes. uh, he's on the front cover of the next magazine. Yeah. Um, so. Yes, David Coulter. Very proud of that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, front cover of the next motorsport magazine, David Coulthard uh, driving uh, Lotus 25. 25, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, before I go, just to say that the next uh, podcast will be on Tuesday, July the 9th. That's when we'll record it anyway, so you'll probably hear it on the 10th, wherever you are in the world. That will be with Richard Noble uh, about breaking land speed records, of course, and the very latest news on the Bloodhound SSC project, which is the car that's going to do a thousand miles an hour, which is weird, but anyway. Um, (laughs) Richard Noble will be with us, um, and in fact I was with with Richard Noble in the desert in 1983 when he won the world land speed record, so um, I know he is mad. Um, But thank you David again, and thank you everybody on iTunes, on SoundCloud, wherever you are, thank you, and please do join us for the next Motorsport Magazine podcast. Bye-bye. Eu não posso, 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 eu não